What's up, everyone, and welcome to the Flip Flop Guy podcast. I'm Andy Mokel, and I'll be your host. Our goal is to have epic conversations with people from all walks of life. There are no talking points that are off the table. It's going to get wild. We hope our guests inspire and motivate you to walk with purpose as we trudge the road of human existence. Enjoy the show. All right, what's up, everybody? Uh, today's episode is episode 100. It's going to be a little bit different than normal. I am not interviewing anybody, um, and I'm actually kind of terrified. Um, I'm going to be telling my life story, which I've done for the past 14 years uh, since I got sober. Um, you know, and I'm not speaking on behalf of any 12-step program. I am simply going to let you guys know my story and what I've done in order to stay sober since October 17th of uh, 2004. And, you know, I'm sure my story will resonate with the fact of... <laughs> why I've been sober and it's funny because people often comment you know they see me with Swisher Sweets or Backwoods and always think that I'm smoking blunts or you know partaking in that at some level and that's totally actually opposite it's it's terrible because I smoke shitty cigars and inhale them like they're cigarettes um, so yeah like I said, I'm kind of terrified. I'm going to open myself up um, in hopes that maybe it resonates with someone to the point where if they feel like they need help or they they feel like they need someone to talk to, anybody can reach out to me and talk to me. Um, I have a lifetime of experience of terrible decisions and decision-making and uh, coming back from that and succeeding and thriving and being comfortable with myself and who I am. Um, you know, like I said, though, I, in the past, I don't post a lot of personal stuff. So we're about to get seriously personal. And uh, I want to thank my buddy Sloan, who recently was involved with a Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation film. And uh, he's sort of the inspiration that is driving this, um, you know, and, and opening myself up. So, um, as you guys know, you all listen to the podcast. My name is Andy. I'm the host and, uh, you know, it's a DIY outdoors hunting podcast. I got involved in hunting from a very, very early age. Uh, my, in my entire family hunts, uh, my mom's hunted when she was younger. My grandma, my grandfather is on both sides. My dad, my uncles. Um, you know, we've been a uh, involved outdoors family for generations. Um, and I grew up in Marin County. Uh, my family is five generations back. So we've been in Marin County for a very, very long time. Uh, my grandfather was a fishing game warden from Marin County. Uh, my grandmother 
was the last one of the last lighthouse keeping families out of Point Reyes. She was born at the Point Reyes Lighthouse. So my family has a lot of roots and a lot of history in Marin County from before Marin County became sort of the weird place that it is these days. And, uh, you know, I grew up in an extremely normal household and a normal family. You know, my parents have been married forever. My grandparents were married forever on both sides, on my mom and my dad's side. Uh, you know, my dad worked a construction job and my mom worked, uh, she was an aisle clerk at Safeway. So my mom retired from that and uh, my dad retired from working construction his entire life. And he built the home that we lived in, uh, you know, and, and would go on hunting trips when he could, whether it be Montana or in the Sierras or out on the coast uh, to go hunt blacktail. Uh, my dad is an extremely well-versed individual in the sense that, you know, when he got into bow hunting, he was like, all right, I'm just going to build myself my own traditional bows and started building his own traditional bows. Um, you know, he wanted to build his house. He built his house. He was, he is very good at doing anything like that. Uh, so me growing up. You know, I was, I was a good kid until about 10 years old and right around 10 years old was, uh, my first time that I ever tried smoking pot. And, uh, you know, as a 10 year old, how do you, <laughs> how does that even happen? Uh, I don't know. I won't get into that details, but you know, and then, and, uh, Along with, you know, I think the first time I tried smoking cigarettes, we were seven or eight and it's just all neighborhood kids and everybody had older siblings and everything was relatively accessible for all of us to just be shitheads. And, uh, you know, we all were, um, that led to exposing a lot of my friends and a lot of everybody that I knew at a young age in grade school to smoking pot and we'd all go on quote mountain bike rides or you know fun adventures and really it was just us all headed down to the creek to fish all day and smoke pot um <laughs> and later in life you know later in life a couple years after that is you know we started doing shoulder tapping and drinking and uh my drinking kind of took off and i went down a lot of different holes um you know and and i was just 100 percent an out of control kid by high school you know i was i was messing with almost anything underneath the sun uh with some exceptions of things that i told myself i'd, I'd never get involved in these and um you know, I got kicked out of my high school freshman year and became a ward of the state, um, got put on probation and basically tossed around different continuation high schools local to Marin County. Uh, my parents had absolutely zero clue what to do with me. And, and as far as I'm concerned, nothing was of their fault. They were the most loving, kind, nurturing parents, always 
instilling in me good morals and ideals. And, you know, I was just a wild child, man. I was just like out of control doing anything that I could to, uh, you know, go wild and, and take it a step further. And, uh, that continued all the way until my sophomore year of high school. So for about a year. And at that point I ended up getting arrested for failing a, a urine analysis test when I was 15 years old and being enrolled into a, a program that was being initiated at the time it was called drug court. And, um, I got locked up, I think it was December 20th or December 19th, right before Christmas. And uh, I ended up missing Christmas that year, uh, 2001. And, or maybe it was 2002, but I ended up missing that Christmas and that New Year's. I was locked up for 35 days and the judge had decided that the only way they were going to let me out was by shipping me to um, a drug rehab, a drug abuse rehab. And at that point I had been through multiple quote outpatient drug rehabilitation programs and, uh, they just didn't work, you know, and, and growing up, I was extremely uncomfortable, um, to talk to anybody. I was extremely uncomfortable in my own skin. Um, I was terrified of every single tiny bit and piece of life, um, socially, you know, a lot of people always are like, no way, that's not possible, you know, but it actually was. Um, and uh, I went up into Montana, into Kalispell, Marion, Montana, where I was staying for, I think it was there for about 60 days, 60, 65 days, and had intensive inpatient drug rehab, 16 days of which was spent backcountry skiing across the Bob Marshall and uh, doing peak climbs. And there was a three days solo trip that was also involved in that and kind of re-exposed me to my love and my passion that I had for the outdoors as a child and really opened my eyes at that point in time that there was so much more life to live than, you know, drugs and alcohol, which is what I had been doing. Um, I left from Montana and I ended up living in a, another inpatient rehab in Texas, in Texarkana, Texas for about 90 to a hundred days. And, uh, at that time in my life, it felt like I was just completely robbed of seeing my friends. I turned 16 in rehab and, you know, I, I, I just, I don't know. Um, you know, but by that point too, I had lost most of my friends. Nobody really wanted much to do with me. You know, I was the kid that everybody's parents warned them about. You know, I was the one that everybody's parents was like, don't hang out with that kid. He's, he's terrible. <laughs> and um, so going further from there, I, I graduated that program. I came back to Marin County and I managed to stay sober for quite some time for roughly about three years. I, I call it that I was white knuckling it and wasn't really active or involved in helping anybody or doing anything else other than just kind of being sober and all of that. And, uh, after a while it didn't really work. Um, and 
you know, I can go way back in my life and think about battling depression throughout the entirety of my life. Um, whether it was, you know, how I had been treated by my peers or, um, mental and emotional struggles that I was having internally growing up. Um, you know, but when I was really young, uh, suicide was something that I thought about often because I, I, I had no coping skills as far as, as how to live life and, um, how to be present. So that was a big reason why I turned to drugs and alcohol is it made me feel comfortable in my own skin. Um, you know, so anyways, I, I came back and had been sober for quite some time in a relationship, you know, in high school when you're in love and everything is so, you know, for me, everything was so, you know, official and for life. And, you know, I ended up dating this gal and being young and dumb. I made a bunch of fucking mistakes and she broke up with me and it was the worst experience of my life. And I ended up uh, swallowing a, a bottle of Tylenol and other household products that I found um, because I just, you know, at 16 or 17 years old, I just couldn't imagine life, you know, without this person. It was a terrible idea. Um, and I, you know, I ended up attempting suicide. And uh, shortly after that, I, I called my best friend and my neighbor who I grew up with and asked him to come pick me up and take me to the emergency room. And uh, he was pissed. Like he was, he was beyond pissed. And we actually reconnected later in, in life and, and uh, had a pretty neat discussion about it, which I'll, if I remember, we'll get into later in this podcast episode. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, I'm just laughing, thinking back on all this stuff. It's just, it's a lot. It's a lot to think about. Um, so I ended up getting put into Alta Bates. I had no spiritual solution for for my for my ailments, right? Like I had no solution. I had no grounding. I had no conception of a power greater than myself or a God. Um, and that in turn just left me fucked up and I had no faith. I had no acceptance of anything. I had no ability to be open-minded to anything. Everything was now immediate and the end of the world if it wasn't going to work out. Um, so I was in Alta Bates on a 5150 hold in Berkeley for 72 hours. Um, I got out and shortly after that um, stint, um, I was... Uh, I got into a relationship and in that relationship, during the beginning of that relationship, I had started doing drugs again. And uh, that was a quick year and a half spiral of everything terrible. Um, my family wanted nothing to do with me within a month of me going back to drugs and, and drinking. And, uh, you know, my... Back then, the, the big drug that I was, you know, involved with was cocaine. And it was a terrible experience. And 
you know, really quickly, I, I lost everything that I had in my life. Um, somehow the gal who I was dating allowed me to live with her for roughly a year, year and a half. And um, that relationship resembled everything that's terrible about dating a dysfunctional drug addict because uh, I was an absolute terrible person um, throughout that entire experience for her. And, uh, you know, at the end of that year and a half, um, I had been in and out of the hospital for defecating blood. Um, she had kicked me out. So for the most part, I was either couch surfing or living in my car. And the last night that I ended up drinking, um, you know, the, the thing for me was once I started drinking, I, I couldn't stop. Um, I didn't know if I was going to drink for that day or 10 days or what my bender was going to look like. I just knew that I was going to drink for oblivion. And that was the only way that I knew how to function in life, you know, at 19 years old. Um, and at the, like I was saying, at the end of that year and a half, um, I totaled my car drunk driving, um, and lost my job, lost my second job that I had lined up within a matter of days of starting my employment there. And, uh, you know, the girl left me and, you know, nobody wanted anything to do with me. And I made a decision at that point that, all right. I need to go back to a 12 step program. I need to get sober. I need to change my life. This is not going to work. I'm 19 years old and uh, I'm better than this. This is not what I need to be doing. So I showed up with this intention at my ex-girlfriend's work and, you know, talked to her. My parents were allowing me to, to sleep at the house because I hadn't had a drink or a drug inside of a week. And, um, I was trying to sort out, you know, what my next move was and, and what was going on. I showed up to her work and there was a fellow there and he did slate roofing and, you know, he offered me a job and he said, Hey, if you show up here tomorrow morning at 5am, um, I got a job for you. And I knew that day, no matter what, I couldn't take a drink. I couldn't take a drink. I couldn't smoke pot. I couldn't do anything. Because I knew once I started, I wasn't going to stop. And I knew that once I started, there's no way that at 5 a.m. the next morning, I was going to be able to make any engagement whatsoever. Um, and I uh, didn't take a drink that day. And that continued. And as I said, my parents allowed me back into their house. I ended up getting that job and uh, staying sober. And so I had had a period, you know, of... of you know, showing up and, and, uh, being involved in a 12 step program. And, you know, like I said, I was staying at my parents' house. So I went downstairs one night and I was sitting in this funk in this haze. And there's a guy who I grew up, he was, uh, who I grew up with. He was a good friend of my dad's. His name was, uh, we'll just call him Chili Billy. And Chili had, approached me and said, you know, your dad told me that you're having some problems and you kind of need to sort your life out. You know, you should show up and you should do this. And that night I had gone back to my parents' house and uh, I was sitting in my room in this emotional um, 
terrible spot. You know, it was like gray. I was living in this like emotional fog. Um, you know, a book that I'll quote a couple times here calls it pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization. And that was where I was at, you know, sober trying to figure out what my next move is in life and just destroyed by my alcoholism and, you know, where I was at. And uh, so I, I, at that point, I'd come downstairs and I said, hey, mom, let me, you know, like I said, my car was totaled from drunk driving. So I said to my mom, hey, mom, let me get your car keys. You know, I need to go somewhere and I'll be back. And, and hearing where I was going to go, my mom's, you know, she was on the phone, but her jaw kind of fell through the floor, you know, and she was pretty excited. She threw me her car keys and I left. And that night at that meeting, you know, I kind of had this like come to moment. Um, and in, in a book that I read, if anybody has questions, I'd be more than happy to, to tell you about what book it is. But we'll do that on the side. I won't, I'll try to avoid mentioning it in the podcast. And it says, we learned we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we're alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or presently may be has to be smashed. And it was at that point, you know, that night at that meeting, when the delusion that I could ever drink like a normal person was gone. It doesn't exist, you know. Like um, for me, I drink, I break out in handcuffs. You know, I'm a, I'm extremely allergic to alcohol in the sense that it's terrible for me, and the person that I become while I'm drinking uh, is even worse, out of control terrible and uh you know at that point i was given the gift of willingness and the gift of desperation the willingness to go as far as i needed to in order for victory over alcohol and never drinking again and the desperation of a homeless person that doesn't want to be homeless and is you know i'll i'll do anything it doesn't matter i'm desperate and uh you know that the the only way up from the bottom i guess and everybody always says this the only way up from the uh, from up uh, <laughs> the only way up from the bottom is bouncing up right and uh you know i i hit it in full force man and and i and i did what i was told um you know my spiritual advisor told me to jump and my response instantly was how high you know um I, I did exactly what was recommended to me and uh, life started getting better. It started getting a lot better. Um, that career that I was in doing roofing was was blossoming and, and going really strong. Um, I was talking with the owner of the company, you know, about long term employment and starting to run multiple job sites at a time. And it was all slate roof, which is a very specialty roof. And uh you know, life started happening in a great way for me. Um, and like I said, I was showing up, I was uh, going to meetings, I was doing what was asked of me, you know, my spiritual advisor would recommend something and anytime where I would struggle or I wouldn't do it or I'd put it off, the emotional pain would get so deep and so strong that it would push me into doing the work that I needed to do in order to succeed and feel better than I was feeling. Um, and that continued 
you know, for six or seven months and, and, you know, there's, there's one on there. And, uh, and I talk about this because, uh, a lot more people out there have experienced this or dealt with this in their life than is ever willing or comfortable to admit. And, uh, you know, this is my story and, and, you know, my pain and my suffering of things that had happened to me. Um, you know, again, and I'm, I'm sharing this story with the hopes that, you know, if anybody has experienced anything like this and they need help, you're always welcome to reach out to me about it and, uh, and talk to me about it, you know? And, and, uh, so when I was in my, in my teens, I had been sexually assaulted by a, by a man. And, uh, you know, there was no way in hell that I was ever going to share that with another person. And there was no way in hell that I was ever going to overcome that obstacle. Uh, and, uh, you know, I had gone to the police department when I was 18. I'd gone to the, the local police department and sat down with the, the sergeant or chief of police at the time in my town and because of who I was and because of my reputation as a bad kid, um, he basically laughed me out of his office and was like, I could give a fuck about you or anything that's ever happened to you. Uh, you know, and that fucked me up that, you know, really messed me up in my head. And, uh, so I was going through the process and I, I became comfortable to admit that in order to be able to help other people. Um, and in, in admitting that and having, you know, and being pretty open and, and willing to share that pain and that struggle um, has allowed me to grow past it and, you know, spiritually and mentally um, in a lot of ways heal from it. Um, of course, I mean, there's still times when I have issue or, or whatever, uh, but the ability to help other people come through it on their own and discuss it with other men that have had similar experiences, which is mind-blowing because there's a lot more men on the planet that have experienced similar situations that um, are never comfortable talking about it until they hear another man that's experienced it. You know, so that's why I am, I mean, what do you, you know, yanking to fuck me up, but <laughs> whatever. <laughs> but, uh, you know, so I got to a point where I felt comfortable admitting that and I worked through that. Um, you know, and there was, there was a lot of other things, you know, that I had done that I won't go into too much detail about, um, you know, where I, I got to go back to a lot of of people that I had wronged and families that I had wronged and, you know, make those situations right. And, um, you know, where I owed people money, I was able to pay them back, you know, in restitution to the fullest, um, you know, and, and so life started getting better and better and better. Um, and, and I was going through and doing what was asked of me and what was told. And I was being 100% honest, um, and showing up in order to help other people. Uh, and, uh, about six or seven months into my sobriety, I was working on a forklift about, uh, I don't know, 
20 to, or no, it was 30 to 35 feet up in the, in the forks on a grate all and I was loading the grate all and the pallet flipped while I was in it. Um, the foreman on the job site that day did not secure the pallet down uh, to the forks and I was not tied off to anything and I was also in the, in the bucket and um, the pallet flipped. There's 500 pounds of slate and the pallet, the pallet flipped and I landed on my knee, um, broke my knee, fractured my back, lacerated my liver, internal bleeding. Everything was terrible. I smashed my face. A bunch of slate landed on me and cut me up. Um, definitely didn't think I was going to come out of that in any good form. And, uh, the ambulance pulled up, you know, and when the ambulance pulled up, the first words out of my mouth were, I'm a sober alcoholic. I don't want anything to change what I'm going through. Um, because I was extremely anti taking any sort of medications prescribed by the doctor at the time. And, uh, Kind of what had happened for me there was uh, this this quote that I'll read right now. And it says, And we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recoil from it as if from a hot flame. You know, me saying, I don't want anything to change what I'm going through. We react sanely and normally. And we'll find that this has happened automatically. We'll see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we've been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. And that's my direct experience since I've quit drinking. Um, you know, I'm I'm not afraid to be around people that are drinking. It's funny when people find out I don't drink, everybody always kind of gets weird. You know, oh, I'm so, I'm sorry, I'm drinking around you. It's like, no, nah, man, that's that's your life choice. That's what you want to do. That does not affect me in any way whatsoever. What you're doing with your personal life. I can't do it because it will affect your personal life if I'm doing it. So I won't do it if that makes it. I'm sure some people got a chuckle out of that. But, you know, because that's just I'm a terrible drunk when I drink. And, um, you know, it says at the end, that is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. And I was never religious. I've never been religious. I've been to church. Sometimes I go to church. Um I am very spiritual. I'm very spiritually connected. Um, I try to meditate and uh, consult my God on a daily basis. Um, some days I'm great at it. Some days I'm terrible at it. Some weeks I'm great at it. Some weeks I'm terrible at it. You know, and and my spiritual condition is 100% dependent upon nature. Um, for me, I was very, very difficult in the sense that like, I didn't believe in God or anything like that. So in order for me to believe in God, I had to break it down to something as simple as a power greater than myself. And a power greater than myself, the only way I was able to actually obtain that and feel that and relate to the existence of a power greater than myself was through nature. Um, 
I can't tell the trees not to grow. I can't tell the, tr the grass not to grow. I can't tell the waves not to break. You know what I mean? I can't tell them to roll the opposite direction. You know, nature is 100% at the end of the day, the most almighty, powerful force that's tangible that I can find on the planet, you know? And, and that was, for me, how I came to believe in a power greater than myself, which I choose to call God, um, you know? And, and at the same time, as well as being extremely open-minded to different religions and, you know, listening to people quote the Bible or quote whatever it is that they can quote at me that will be helpful or bring further spirituality or spiritual solution into my life and being open-minded to other people's thoughts and opinions it's so extremely important to me because how am I going to grow? How am I going to learn more if I'm not a sponge? If I can't saturate everything around me and, you know, soak up all of the information and knowledge that I possibly can to learn more. Um, you know, so I'd fallen off the roof uh, and I had no idea what was going to happen. Um, I was able to heal and recover from that. Um, and, uh, during that time period, you know, I was on, on workman's comp for quite some time. Um, I ended up living down in LA for a few years and checking out the film industry down in LA and, you know, the music industry and going on different tours and filming different shows and throwing parties and, the entire time I was down in L.A. doing all of this stuff, I actually was managing to stay sober and not uh, be drinking or doing drugs or anything like that. Um, you know, and, and uh, after being in L.A. for some time, I ended up deciding to move back to Northern California. Um, I'd gone on a road trip. Uh, you know, with a couple different bands and ended up on the East Coast and then met up with a friend of mine on the East Coast. And we ended up driving to Texarkana and revisiting my rehab. So mind you, now I'm like 23, 24 years old and sober for almost coming up into five years, I think, or three or four years. And uh, at the time and, and uh, you know, it was an epic trip. You know, hit Texarkana, then shot up to Montana, stopped at my uncle's ranch in Montana. And on that trip, that was when my uncle was kind of like, you know, you need to reconnect with nature and you need to get out of L.A. He had a lot of experience with Hollywood and the film industry and how L.A. is. And, you know, he was just giving me advice on what to do next. And uh, so I ended up leaving L.A. when I got back down there. And uh, moved out and moved back home and moved in with my parents. Kind of unknowing of, of what I was going to do or what was going to go on or what was going to happen next in my life. And uh, all I knew is that it had been seven years since my suicide attempt. And, you know, it was time that I could start getting back into the woods with with, uh, with a rifle and, and, and start hunting again and really diving into nature and all that. And I did that and really, you know, just started, I'd go up for 10 or 15 days at a time 
and I'd stay at my family cabin and really just starting to reconnect. And when I would come back to Marin, you know, my biggest goal would just try to be of service to my community and uh, what was going on around me. And, you know, I started developing healthy habits. And, you know, one of the biggest things I can remember that far back was every time that I would be coming off the mountain, I think it's 2007, 8, 9, 10, and all that. Every time I'd be coming back, the first thing I would do when I would return into cell phone service was I would call my grandmother and I'd be like, hey, grandma, you know, this is what I did. This is how I hunted. This is where I hunted. This is, you know, where I was focusing and this is what the weather was like. And then she had the ability to, oh, well, you should try this this time of year or do that because she is really, really well versed in, in where I hunt. And she'd give me tips and tricks and all that kind of stuff. And if need be, you know, my grandfather, when he was alive, he died in 1998, which is right around the same time I dove off the deep end with drugs and alcohol. Um, he uh, kept a diary of every single day of his life since he got out of the Navy in World War II. Um, so if there were hunting days that I wanted to compare, you know, you could just look up in his diary and be like, what was the hunting report that day? Was he hunting? What was it like? You know, where did he hunt? What was doing? What was the weather doing? Um, which is extremely beneficial to have at my fingertips. You know, we still have all of his diaries, uh, you know, and, and going further and, you know, coming out of workman's comp and multiple surgeries and all the different things that were going on because my body was destroyed. And uh, I had ended up deciding that 911 dispatch was the career that I wanted. I really wanted to be a dispatch officer. I wanted to be the first person, the person on the other end of the phone, making the phone call had to deal with in order to keep them calm, keep them centered, keep them collected. Um, and a terrible, tragic, whatever sort of moment, you know, that was going on in, in their life and in their situation. Um, I just felt like for me, that was going to be the best way that I was going to be able to give back to my community and to the people around me. Um, and yeah, like I said, try to give back and help others, um, you know, helping others and uh, selflessness has been something that's been instilled in me since, you know, I got sober 14 years ago. And the importance of selflessness, um, you know, and, and doing things to be there for the moment and not doing them for personal gain or monetary gain or anything like that. Um, just showing up and being accountable, being a man of my word and uh, being a man. Um, going back, I'll go back to when I first got sober really quick. And that was, yeah, I mean, those are all morals and ethics that my father had taught me. Um, but as an adolescent and a shithead, you know, I was absolutely unable to retain any of the stuff that he had taught me. And when I got sober, I was lucky to be surrounded by a group of men that took me under their wing. They showed me the ropes. They taught me how to show up early. They taught me how to show up late. They taught me how to sit with somebody and talk to them about their issues and their problems and be there and accountable for other people instead of just being accountable for myself. Um, 
you know, and, and really just instilled selflessness um, and being and service to our fellows, um, to our fellow men, particularly, uh, and really just trying to show up. Um, so that was a rant and I lost my spot. So I tried getting a job with 911 Dispatch. I put myself through the 911 Dispatch Post Academy, which was a great experience. I loved it. Um, it was 2008. Our economy was in the tank. Absolutely no way, no how was I going to be getting a career anywhere inside of the law enforcement community because the state was not hiring entry-level employees, even though I had gone through schooling and wasn't going to have the state pay for it. I paid for it myself. Um, that coupled with the fact that I was a terrible teenager, um, really made it difficult, uh, for me to be an eligible candidate to be a 911 dispatch operator. Um, so I kind of just started looking for a job anywhere. Um, I ended up finding a job low level and I worked at that company, uh, started that in 2010, January 17th, 2010. And I worked from the bottom of the company all the way to the top of the company, um, and got up as high as I possibly could. And, uh, it was a great experience. It was a great work experience. I learned so much about business, so much about management and working with employees and being an accountable employee and uh, just trying to do the next right thing and the next best thing to create success within the company. And it was a really amazing experience, you know, and, and you know, coming into 2012, um, my grandmother's health was declining. I was living in Sonoma County, am still living in Sonoma County. I live currently in Sonoma County, um, you know, and, and she was battling her own demons. She was a very stubborn woman, you know, and, and very self-sufficient. Like she could do anything tough as fucking nails. You know, she'd take her dogs on like insane hikes every day, way into later ages of her life. And, um, you know, at, at the end it was, she had slow health decline or I'm, I don't know if it was slow or not, but, um, I'm pretty sure she had had a number of strokes that she never told anybody about, um, because she was losing mobility in her body and in you know, her hands are in all different, in all different aspects, really. Um, so I would show up to her house every Friday and I would drink a root beer and I'd pour her a cocktail and I'd light her cigarettes. And, you know, we would sit on the couch and we would watch tennis or golf or the Warriors or the Giants. And uh, that was, you know, what I really enjoyed doing. Um, and I really just got to show up and be an accountable member of my family. And it had taken me years to a point, I feel like, to gain, regain the trust and reestablish that relationship within my family to where, you know, that would be something that I was allowed to do. Um, and, uh, you know, so I really just started showing up and and being a, a son to my parents and a, a grandson to my grandmother and 
a brother to both my brothers. Um, I'm probably still not a great uncle. I try to be a good uncle. I love my net. My I have 12 nieces and nephews, or I have 11 and a half. One's on the way, and uh, which has really helped me like not have to think about having kids because there's so many fucking kids in my family. Um, you know, but so 2012, my grandmother's health is, is deteriorating, which anybody who's lost a grandparent and I'm sure a parent can relate to how difficult it is when you watch somebody's health deteriorate. Um, and my dad, uh, I got a phone call at work one day and it was my mom and my mom never calls me at work. And I look at the phone and I'm like, well, this must be important. And uh, my mom says, your brother's on, on her, on her, on his way to come pick you up. Um, your dad has had multiple heart attacks and he's in the hospital. And, uh, my dad is extremely important to me. My dad is my bedrock and my foundation. Um, you know, he is probably one of the, if not the most important, um, male role model in my life currently and forever. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I had no idea how to deal with it. So I just showed up and me being where I was at in life, I was the rock for my family. I was the one that was supposed to make the phone calls. I called my sister. I called my brother. I called, you know, family friends, kind of let everybody know what was going on. And, and, you know, I was also the emotional rock that everybody kind of broke themselves against. Um, you know, because that's what I was taught to do. I was taught to suit up and show up and, uh, be there no matter what. And, uh, so that's what I did. Um, my father, however, had survived uh, both heart attacks. Um, they brought him back to life twice. And I think it was the Widowmaker heart attack is, is what they call it. And um, so he was getting coming back to health. And shortly after he was coming back to health, my grandmother passed. Um, she had been on hospice for a while. And... Uh, she had died. Um, and, you know, I think at that point was kind of when I was like, all right, you know, I'm really like, I'm really involved in the outdoors, but I'm going way further. Um, and also at this point I'd become a registered hunters education instructor and, and just really looking for any chance that I possibly can to give back to my community. Um, and help, um, you know, because I had been such a terrible youth and taking so much from the community uh, growing up that, you know, it was my turn to give back and it was my turn to be accountable and be a good representative of, of what being a good person can do. And, you know, I started really diving further and further into hunting and, and, uh, really getting into hunting and I kind of set a goal. I want to say maybe in, it was coming out of a relationship in 2018. I had been with a gal for four years on the cusp of becoming engaged and it ended up not working out. Um, you know, and in that same time period, I'd 
I bought my first house here in Sonoma County and, um, you know, really just tried to start building a life. That relationship uh, had failed. And that was when I really just kind of started dedicating as much humanly possible time to the outdoors and uh, really showing up and, and really trying to be more active and involved in the community of hunting and fishing and, uh, you know, really just loving and enjoying life um, and living my best life. And that was also the same time when I kind of learned that my job is great, but for me, my job is a, is a byproduct of the societal need, um, obviously to have money, which is everybody's need. Um, you know, but I really like, I really started dedicating a lot of time into recouping my health and, you know, we're talking 12 years, 10 years, 12 years, 11 years after my accident and really trying to work on physical fitness and really trying to get, um, back into the mountains in a, in a way that I didn't think was ever possible for me due to my knee problems and my back problems and, you know, just all my internal body problems that I was having. Uh, and I just really started to do it and apply myself and, and, uh, try to put my best foot forward and, and show up and help other people and help other people understand why we hunt and, and what's going on with hunting and, you know, why I hunt, you know, and, and, uh, really trying to hammer home the fact that like, I hunt to fill my freezer. I hunt for the meat, you know, I hunt for the community and everybody's seen a venison flip flop. You know, I don't need to go into detail about that. Um, but I grew up my whole life watching the community that that builds at barbecues and the friendship and camaraderie, you know, and, and really just trying to fill my freezer with as many flip-flops as I can and do them for as many people as I possibly can and show the experience that it is to as many people as I possibly can. And, you know, my life today and has has been for years a life beyond my wildest dreams um you know i i was recently let go from my job just coming up on a month ago today probably yeah a month ago today um and you know i've gotten myself to a position where life is so far beyond my wildest dreams and, and so amazing, you know, it's, I don't know where the next step is. I don't know what the next step is. Um, I know that I show up. I know that I do my best to work as hard as I possibly can, no matter what, you know, I try to avoid negativity at all costs. I try to smile as much as I possibly can, because no matter what, at the end of every single day of my life, when I'm going to bed, my life is far better than I deserve. You know, I was a homeless drug addict, you know, and from getting sober to less than 10 years, I bought my first house and I have created connections through the passion of the outdoors um, that are irreplaceable. 
um, the friends that I have in my life today, uh, including, you know, the, the person who I call for spiritual guidance. Uh, everything I have in my life today is a direct result of God. Everything that I have in my life today is a miracle, you know. This is not me. This is I it's it's so hard because it's so hard for me to take full credit for my achievements because they're not my achievements. These are God's achievements. This is me being being a vessel for my God and trying to carry a message for my God and showing up and suiting up every single day of my life trying to do the best that I can to be the best vessel of what my God would have me be. Um, you know, and it's, it's just amazing, you know, and, and I look around at the opportunities I have and I look around at everything that I get to do on a daily, weekly, monthly basis and the, the places that I find myself and I look around and I'm like, damn, man. And that, you know, and that's, those are those moments when I when I'll take a picture of a sunset and post a sunset. Like those moments when I'm looking at the sunsets, like those are so much more than just a picture to me because I look back at where I've come from to where I am now and I'm like this isn't me, man. This isn't my work. This is God working through me. You know, and and every everything is better than I deserve, you know, and it's like how did I get here? You know, and it was the men that taught me when I first got sober, how to be a man among men, how to be accountable, you know, how to do everything, you know, of, of where I'm at today. And, uh, you know, it's so amazing and, and it's still such a work in progress. You know, one of the big things that I try to focus on a lot is, you know, my spiritual connection uh, with my God and my spirituality, because it's so important to me. It's, it's really what keeps me connected and what keeps me grounded. And, you know, when things aren't going right and they're not going, you know, how I selfishly want them to go, like I turn to my God and I trust and I have faith. Everything happens for a reason. Everything there is, there is such a bigger picture that I don't even know about what's happening in the scene of the world that I can't see that, you know, losing a job or losing a girlfriend or, you know, losing anything um, happened for a reason. There was a reason specifically for that to happen, whether it's to catapult me into the next phase or put me into enough pain uh, internally and into enough internal and emotional pain where it hurts bad enough that I'm willing to do the work in order to better my life to the next plane. You know, um, in pain and suffering and in darkness, when I have found my way out, I always find my way out better than when I started going into it. You know, having had more life experience um, and more understanding and comprehension of how to deal with different life circumstances on life's terms. You know, everybody has a story. Everybody has problems. Everybody has their own pain and their own suffering and their own internal shit that either the, sometimes they talk about it, sometimes people never talk about it. Um, 
you know, but everybody is suffering in one way or another. And, you know, it's, it's how we deal with it. And for me, I've found the best way to deal with everything, uh, whether bad or good, you know, is through positivity and through avoiding negativity and through trying to look for the best in every single situation and look for the lesson and look for how is this going to help me be a better person in the future so I can be of service to my fellows, you know, and, and being of service to my fellows and being of service to my community. Um, that's top priority rating for me. You know, that, that is the benchmark of everything that I want out of life. Um, you know, like I said, I've been sober for, for 14 years. Um, you know, God willing, you know, October's coming up and, uh, that'd be another anniversary for me. Um, I wouldn't change my life. I wouldn't change the pains. I wouldn't change the struggles. Um, I wouldn't change anything that I've been through because the amount that it benefits me in order to be of service and available to help other people is unparalleled to anything. And the satisfaction that I get from being of service is beyond any financial, monetary, any gain that I could possibly have. You know, uh, it's really an amazing process, you know, and, and coming to terms with that and coming to understand that, you know, and another big thing that I always try to do is, is not be reliant on people, you know, and, and, uh, cause no matter what, no matter how great of a person any of us is, or, you know, whatever I am or you are, or anyone, no matter how hard we try, like we're all fallible. We all make mistakes. We all fuck up sometimes. We all go through trials and tribulations, you know, and, and like I said earlier, it's, it's how we deal with that shit and how we come out the other side that really sets us apart, you know, and it really sets, sets the bar between the men and the boys um, on how we deal with certain, with certain circumstances. Ugh. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, for me, another thing is just trying to be open minded and trying to be willing to learn to look for the lesson in everything and everybody. Everybody has something to offer all of us, every individual. Um, and there's a lesson to be learned in everything. Uh, and there's so much more to my story that I'm leaving out just because I'm trying to keep this PG. This will be extremely public and this will be put out there on a large scale. Um, you know, but I, at the same time, I want everybody to know that, you know, as, as much as I can and, and as, as, you know, yeah, as much as I can, man, my hand is always out there. And I know I say it a bunch and, and, you know, for the people that know, they know. For the people that have reached out to me in dark times or whatever times, you know, people know that no matter what, man, I'm here. Whether I know you or I don't know you, if I can help you, I'll do my damnedest to try. Um, you know, and and episode 100, that's 100 episodes down. I felt like getting maybe a little bit more intimate with you guys and and 
I know that you guys have heard jokes in past episodes and sure posts on my Instagram of me being a wild child or, you know, this or that or whatever. Like, um, I just really wanted to share with you guys a lot of my experience, you know, and, and for anybody that's suffering with drugs and alcohol or struggling or if you're an adult and you have a child, you know, or, or a teenager that's suffering and struggling, you know, I found my inner peace in nature and reconnecting with nature and anybody out there who's having a problem. My phone is always on, you know, my, you can message me on the Legion account. You can message me on my personal account. Um, you know, anyone who's struggling with anything, I'm always all ears and I'm always willing to help. You know, I, I watched my parents struggle with it and have come out the other side. I struggled with it, you know, and I've helped many other people for a lot of years that are struggling um, as much as I possibly can, you know. And whether they're struggling with drugs and alcohol or, you know, marital problems or whatever it may be, um, I know being 34 and, you know, still single, you know, how do you help somebody with marital problems? But, you know, I've been able to show up and, and help with what I can and, you know, share my experience, strength and hope. And that's what I'm trying to do here with you guys today is share my experience, strength and hope, my life struggles and uh, really help you guys. And, and I know that there's so many people out there that have found their solace in the outdoors, that have come out of the struggle of drugs and alcohol, um, you know, and have been able to reconnect with themselves and reconnect with their inner peace and, and nature all at the same time. Um, the outdoors is, is a, an amazing experience. And I don't want anyone to miss out on the opportunities, whether it's backpacking, fishing, hunting, you know, hiking, everything, man, wildlife, nature, all of it is so beautiful. And there's so much to be learned from the earth and from the planet. And, you know, there's, there's so much peace out there that we can all have. As long as we just show up, we try to be the best people that we can be. We trust the process and uh, enjoy life, you know, so Hopefully this was helpful for some people. Um, I feel way better about it coming out of it than I did going into it. Uh, it's weird to do a solo episode one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and, you know, if anybody, you know, like I said, I'm here to help. So, you know, anybody that's struggling or having problems, um, you know, I'm always here to help as much as I possibly can. That being said, I am extremely busy and I try to get back to people. I'm also really forgetful. So sometimes I forget. So pester me. And even, <laughs> just pester me. It'll happen. I promise. But, you know, thank you guys for listening for the last year and a half. Uh, we're 100 episodes deep. And I hope you guys enjoy the ride and enjoy what's to come. I'm really trying to work my hardest on making everything uh, better than it is, you know. Uh, 
So for that, have a great day and uh, enjoy yourselves. Thanks for tuning into the show, folks. If you'd like to check us out online, our website is www.theflipflopguide.co. You can find out all the information you need to have your own flip-flop in your own backyard. We encourage this, and we'd love to see this happening in every backyard across America. You can purchase our sauces that have been cranking out flip-flops from my grandfather since the 1960s. If you had trouble filling your tags this year, we also have available on our website Maui Nui Axis Deer Legs. They're 100% USDA approved and ready for your consumption. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram at the flip flop guy. We hope you have a great day. Thanks for tuning in and don't forget to smash that subscribe button.